from Braided Media. This is 54 Lights. Over the past few episodes, we've showcased some amazing creatives who are framing our culture through the page. Authors, for the most part, whose profound words are poetic and powerful. Now, in truth, we still have a few shows left in that journey, but we're going to take a second out today to introduce what will become the focus of our future. A preview of sorts of what's to come. And that's because in a few weeks, we're going to be trading in our focus on pens for a focus on forks. That's right. We're going to be talking food. And I couldn't be more excited to tease that Food Focus series out with you than by having this conversation with my next guest, Chef Kiki Luya. Now, Kiki Luya is a Detroit-born chef who's recently made the New York Times Top 16 Black Chefs list, founded a company called Nest Egg, which is, uh, you know, America's first all-women-owned hospitality group, and whose exploits as a food activist have been featured in Bon Appetit, The Wall Street Journal, Food and Wine, and Martha Stewart Living. Now, her influence may originate in her hometown of Detroit, but in truth is, it expands well beyond it. She's acted as a consultant to help shape citywide food policies, established farmers markets, and has contributed to Yale University's Afro-American Cultural Center and Sustainable Food Program. Oh, uh, and did I mention that Chef Kiki is starring on the 2021 season of Top Chef? That's right. We actually managed to catch Chef Kiki literally days before her debut on the Bravo series. The show, um, Top Chef that is, which is in its 18th season, is an addictive battle that pits 15 Cheftarians, I'm doing air quotes, from across the United States in a battle for the title of Top Chef. Now remember that all of those contestants for Top Chef um, especially this year, have been chosen for primarily two reasons. One is that they're respected chefs, and that's 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 the base. But in a year like this year, these contestants have also been chosen because of their diverse culinary perspective. And so it's with that excitement and that backdrop that I'm really excited to be talking to Chef Kiki about food, culture, and our future. Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. This show is designed to elevate Black voices through authentically told stories of Africans, African descendants, and allies of the community. Our work is done in service of rewriting the African narrative and reclaiming the brand that represents people of color. My name is Kondwani Mwase, Ethiopian-born, Canadian-raised, and proudly Malawian. I live in a world of business, but find inspiration, energy, and purpose in creative spaces. 
sometimes the kitchen. This show is my passionate pursuit to better understand what shapes and defines culture. It is the manifestation of my curiosity. It is most certainly time. The next episode is Farms, Forks, and Food Revolution. Absolutely, and thank you for asking. Um, so my name is pronounced Kiki Bokungu Luya. Kiki Bokungu Luya. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, may I ask you where do the origins of that name? It feels like that's that's not the the, the typical name that you would find in the in Detroit, maybe native, but no. <laughs> like you correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. No, certainly not. Um, so my dad is from Democratic Republic of the Congo, Kinshasa in particular. Um, and there actually is a small town um, right off of the Shwapa River, which is kind of off of the Nile, so a little bit more inland. Um, it's called Bokungu. Um, and so there's a lot of our family members who are named after that village. Um, and so, yes, that's my middle name. Um, and then Luya, you know, our family name. Kiki has other interesting origins. The funny thing is that when you, when other people who other languages hear Kiki, I've heard a lot of things. For us, it's almost slang for a beautiful girl. Um, I know in Filipino, for example, it means something not so nice. <laughs> so some Filipino friends have told me about, and so I thought, oh, okay. So everyone kind of has a little, uh, a little, a little kiki. Just, just a quick double click on then Bokungu. Is there any particular meaning to that, or is it really just about the region? Oh, sure. So um, Bakungu is, it does have a little bit of an origin, a little bit of a backstory, which is kind of fun. So um, Bakungu is actually a tree as well. Um, it is a huge tree, gigantic trunk. And so in, I guess what you would call the olden days, a right, long, long time ago, um, that fruit used to feed the village, or the tree that bore the fruit, Bakungu, used to feed the village. And so it was then referred to as the mother tree because it would take care of people. Um, so Bakungu was also, um, you know, referred to as mother a lot of the time. So wow, that's really yeah. interesting, and it taps into a couple of questions that I was going to get to a little bit later. But maybe I'll jump ahead uh, sure, and yeah. say I typically ask people, um, you know, with with unique names or African names, because this is a show that we typically talk to people of African descent, and I always ask them do you feel that the meaning of your name fits? And I'm going to oh. ask you as well, because from what I understand, you do a lot of work in the community. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously you do a lot of work with food. So, you know, when, when you say uh, fruit and tree of, you know, tree and mother, like does the, yeah. all of that seem to sort of have this, 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 this um, deeper meaning for you? You know, no one's ever asked me that before. And I'm so happy that you did because I never, I guess, thought about it that way. Um, but yes, actually, it really does. Um, so a business partner of mine um, used to tell me, and actually, I've been told this a lot in my life, is that I have a very mothering spirit or motherly spirit, um, or like a calming energy or something that makes people feel like they don't have to worry so much when they're around me. And for me, I'm like an overachiever, Capricorn, <laughs> just, you know, my mind is always going a thousand miles an hour. So the fact that I can kind of um, appear that way to others is, um, I'm thankful, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm 
that they don't kind of experience maybe a little bit of the crazy that's in my own head. Um, but also, I think that I was never really a person who thought of myself as being able to have children before. Um, I don't have children currently, but my husband and I are thinking about it, um, well, really planning it now. Um, and so the older I get, the more I really embrace that term mother and embrace what um, kind of that means to me and how I come off as that way. And, you know, with um, having my own businesses and obviously my own staff um, accordingly, they've also mentioned that to me. Um, and that's wonderful, you know, yeah. I know a possible better way um, for a staff member, an employee to come to you and say, you know, I really feel like you have a mothering spirit. To me, that's like, yeah. So special. So, yeah, it's yeah. the ultimate. It's the ultimate compliment. And uh, the reason I ask that is because of all of the great work that you do. And I think it's um, it, it speaks to who you are. But it's kind of interesting that that comes back to your name, uh, right? So there's that's this almost yeah. like this layer of meaning of of you've always been maybe intended to be in this spot. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the spot that you're in, which I'm I'm super yeah. excited to talk about. Um, from what I understand, you've you've got over like over two decades of experience in the kitchen, um, so to speak, yeah. or, and, and uh, working um, with food. If I were to go back, like what got you into food? What, what motivated mm. you to get into that space? You know, um, there's a little bit of a bittersweet story there that I don't know that I've ever really told, but um, typically I kind of gloss over things a little bit. You know, food was always very much a part of my life growing up. Um, it was a part of being, you know, in our family. It was the way that we kind of shared and showed love with one another. Um, well, my dad's from the Congo, the DRC. My mom is from um, Arkansas originally, so the American South. And, um, you know, a lot of Southern culture is obviously influenced by, you know, African ingredients, African traditions. Um, and, you know, my grandmother on my maternal side also very much showed food um, or showed her affection through food. So it was just a part of who we were. Um, at the same time, though, I don't think that I actually started to cook for myself. I would help out in the kitchen. I would you know, make biscuits, I would um, help make stews, I would tear up, you know, um, uh, you know, herbs and that kind of thing. But I would never, I also helped my mother garden quite a bit. We had a garden growing up and I would love tending to that with her. But as far as actually um, getting into food, it wasn't until I have a sister who passed away a little bit ago um, and she had severe cerebral palsy growing up. Um, and so at that point, um, there was a bit of a shift in our family from, you know, us kind of gathering in a table together, us, um, you know, kind of making this more elaborate, you know, dinner meal together. Um, and I kind of had to start to learn to cook and fend for myself a little bit because my parents were just so busy with her. So where it came from um, was me starting to experiment on my own with food. Um, and learning how to feed myself, starting to read cookbooks on my own and figuring out how things work. And um, it came out of need and necessity, but it was also something that I loved because I remember I've always equated food with love, always, always, always. And I think that that is because it had been shown to me in that way from such an early age. So when I started to learn to cook for myself. It wasn't just about me. It was, let me cook for my sisters. Let me cook for my family. Let me cook for my friends mm -hmm. and kind of with them, you know, what I, what I ultimately have created and, and am proud of. Yeah, that's such a beautiful story. And my condolences for your sister who passed away, actually, um, I, I can empathize. Uh, my sister passed away, actually, just uh, uh, almost a year ago today. 
And uh, so I, I, I can empathize with what you're, you're going through or what you went through at that time anyways. But uh, sure. it's really interesting that you took that adversity and turned it into purpose. And that I think that's really beautiful, oh. Kiki. So um, thank you. Uh, yeah, I love that. Um, I'm curious, you know, as you're as you're you're going through your journey, when does and I ask this of everybody who's in who's become professional in this domain. When do you um, when did you make that transition from okay I'm cooking from a familial place like literally mm. for family and friends and for my own experimentation and growth and and out of necessity to hey I'm actually good enough to like to charge to charge for this like that's a there's a bridge right like I'm a I'm a great cook but I'm no I'm not charging anybody for it so when did you when did you make that transition? Yeah, so you know I. I, I, gosh, it's a, that's an interesting question because on the one hand, I can kind of think back to my first job in food. And that was about when I was 15 years old. Um, so I definitely enjoyed kind of the, um, the, the life of hospitality, right? I mm. enjoyed being able to serve people. I enjoyed being paid for that. Um, and I think I also enjoyed the community that was around that as well. Um, but, you know, truly I was kind of, I've been in and out of food so much in my life, um, more so in than out, but there were points in my life, I was never supposed to be a chef. Um, you know, my parents very much thought that I was a very studious kid and I should be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or possibly a businesswoman, you know, um, it, very, <laughs> very- well, they weren't wrong uh, on the ladder. They weren't long on the right. ladder. <laughs> they yeah. weren't, exactly, yeah, it finally <laughs> all came together, right? <laughs> Um, just maybe some decades after the fact. Um, but it, you know, it, um, so for me, it was like, I almost had to, it was something that I loved. Um, I loved being in food. I loved being around food and, and I loved serving people, but yet I didn't think that it was something that my family would agree to. So I would do both. I would kind of work a nine to five and then go to kitchens at night. And it almost was kind of a point of shame that I wanted to be, um, I mean, I shouldn't say a point of shame, but there was a shame um, in our family for being a cook, being a lion cook, right? Mm -hmm. It was, why did you go to university to do this? Um, and so it really wasn't until my, like, I would say mid to late 20s that I thought, you know what, I am really unhappy when I'm not in a place of being creative, when I'm not doing what it is I love to do, not around food in a way. And so why do I feel like half of my life is about doing what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm so miserable. And the other half is when I feel incredibly free. Mm -hmm. That's when I really made the decision. And I thought I can't go back on this because um, I might be able to do both, right? And that's great to have this duality of character, but at the same time, I'm not being honest with myself unless I really pursue what it is that I want to do. And that has to do with food it, in every single way. You know, speaking, sticking with the kitchen and sticking with food in, in particular, mm -hmm. a lot of words come up to my, in my head, representation in the kitchen, um, mm -hmm. people of, of diversity, women in the kitchen, um, mm -hmm. at, at the executive level, obviously, where you're at. How do you, how, how important is that? Like, it feels like it's important to me. I've spoken to a couple of those chefs, but from your perspective, how important is it that you're a woman, a woman of color that's in that space, leading uh, businesses around food and food, um, that food space? Yeah. So, you know, there are almost two kind of trains of thought right now with that. One of them, um, I completely understand, which is that 
um, call me chef, right? I'm not a woman chef. Mm-hmm. I um, and that distinction between why do we have to always use this other identifier, right? Which is that I'm a woman, I'm a black woman, I am a person of color, right? Before explaining what it is that I am. Um, so in that way, I think people think of like, if we take that away, then there's more equity. There's, right, it's it's an even playing field. I disagree. Um, I understand where people kind of come from with that, but I personally think that, representation to me matters almost more than anything, right? I think that there is, food is always political in my opinion. Um, I think that food is, even the decisions that we make as chefs on a day-to-day basis from who, um, you know, who we serve, who we source from, who we employ, the prices that we have our, our menu items at, um, how we serve our community kind of in this broader sense. And so in addition to that, I think that whenever I go into an establishment, and I could say this probably for anyone on the planet, when you go into an establishment, sometimes you don't feel comfortable and you don't entirely know why. And for me, it's a lot about who was in that space and how welcome I feel in that space. And when I see people who look like me in that space, I automatically feel kind of at ease. And I think about when I was kind of coming up in kitchens, I never saw anyone who looked like me in a position of leadership or power, right? Um, I never saw, you know, another woman chef, another black woman chef at that. And can I, I can imagine how I would have felt at, you know, that age, so impressionable, just trying to do my best, right? And there's someone that I can see myself essentially aspiring to become. I can see what's possible. So there is no food to me without representation. There is no business culture without representation. That is the most important thing um, that I think we can talk about in the food world right now. Yeah, I I love that you say that. And it's been echoed by a couple of people that I've spoken to. And I think you're right. When you walk into a space and you see somebody that you can aspire to be, it makes it that much more attainable, that much more of a path to get there. So I I love your perspective on that. Um, A a lot of the work that I've read that you've been doing, or even the businesses that you've started, um, and the spaces that you're in have to do with food sustainability, um, Mm -hmm. those types of things, um, sources, uh, sourcing ingredients. Is that accurate? Is that where your, your lane and your mind and your passion goes to when it comes to, I guess, food activism? So... That's also a really great question. I think that in, I call it maybe like my early days, that was something that I very much, I still feel very strongly about being honest and transparent with where you're sourcing your ingredients, right? I also very much believe in wage fairness, which is something that, you know, one of the restaurants was really a champion of. I still very much to this day believe that that is Um, one of those fights, I think, in the food system that we need to address, but like really tackle head on right now. But as far as sustainability goes, my head almost goes kind of in another direction. So there was a time when I was, I was really fortunate and I was invited to visit Yale University and speak. Um, And this was, right, this was uh, their sustainable food program in particular. And Mm -hmm like a really great fit. And it was. Um, This was also at the anniversary of their African-American cultural center. 
And so it was really this kind of like dual program that I was speaking on. And I will never forget because there was an opportunity to kind of talk with kind of a hand selected uh, group of students and they could ask questions. It was during a lunch. We had cooked lunch together and then we all sat down to eat, right? And I mean, these, these um, students were incredibly intelligent and me kind of coming in and I'm about to guest lecture, my thought is that, okay, you know, I have restaurants that really, um, not only do we talk the talk, talk the walk. And so I can kind of tell you how this happens beyond theory and kind of in real life. At the same time though, I will never forget that one of the students said, you know, there's a theory that we've been kind of talking about in a class. And so we'd like to bring it up with you at the lecture tomorrow. And I thought, okay, well, at least you're prepping me so I can- <laughs> Warning, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, right? yeah. A little bit of a warning. Um, and they said, you know, when we think about sustainability, we often think about carbon footprint. And truthfully, that's kind of how I thought about it as well, was that that's how you tabulate it, right? It is the, the vision of this tomato right, being, or should I even not say tomato, maybe it could be, uh, let's say an avocado, okay, and we're taking it from Mexico, and we are plucking it before it's ripe, and allowing it to ripen on a truck, right, then you think about that journey, and all of the carbon emissions, and you think about by the time it finally ends up on your plate, all the damage that you've done mm. to the planet because of that one transaction, but yet what we're not considering is the damage that we do within the community that we actually exist within, and so it's less sometimes about how can we affect everything around us? That is almost superfluous. when you are making bad choices um, that affect the community that you serve. And the bad choices could be maybe that because your restaurant exists, right? Because of your prices, because of your decor, because of all of that, you're essentially gentrifying mm -hmm. that and rising up. The, the housing value. Um, maybe you're not being as inclusive. Maybe you're not actually making it a point to hire people of color, to offer opportunities for success, to offer leadership position, to offer fair wage, to offer health insurance, right? You can affect a lot of change when you just look around yourself and think about how you're treating the people who you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And ultimately those changes can have a rippling effect, but why are we so concerned with an avocado right, ripening on a truck when we don't even care about the people who exist within our own establishments. Yeah. That to me was like, yeah, yeah. Right? It game changer mm -hmm. because it, to me, it makes so much sense. And I think that when I think about sustainability, I think about sustainability of the entire food system, not simply just I'm sourcing um, organic vegetables, right? I'm sourcing um, sustainable seafood. What does that all mean? Right. What I'm doing is making sure that I affect change in the place that I am within. And from there, I want to make the best choices for my community possible that might look different from community to community. And that's the other thing, right? There's no one size fits all, but it's engaging with that community and really listening to them to understand how you can be the best advocate for all of our needs because we all exist with each other. So, mm -hmm. yeah. It's a little yeah, bit. that's a that's a great perspective that I hadn't thought of. I would have thought about it sort of like in the in the, the the traditional sense of of sustainability, as you mentioned before. I'm curious in in your travels, does 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 it feel like the people in the in the in the food space are thinking in the same ways that you are, or do you feel that you have to turn and 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 sort of convince them to think about sustainability and reframe it in the way that you just eloquently put? Mm. Um. 
There are a lot of people doing this work, I think, in the food space right now. Rima Seal, um, she was, um, well, she is um, currently the chef over at Reams, California, but she also was a labor organizer. Um, and so she's thinking a lot about um, building an equitable business. Um, and that I, I call her out because she, to me, is a friend of mine. She is um, someone that I really think is thinking outside of just where are we sourcing. And she's in the Bay Area, right? It matters a lot in the Bay Area that you can label something organic. Uh, maybe more so there than in Detroit, where, you know, we just want some fresh fruits and vegetables. But yet, she also is thinking beyond that, how are her practices affecting people? Um, how are they organizing for good together? Um, even on a global sense, too, right? But at the same time, how are they organizing for each other, for employee rights? So I think about her a lot. I think there's a lot of nonprofits currently that are doing this work. Um, a lot of other chefs, I think, that are thinking along this way. And I really do think that 2020 for the restaurant industry in particular was a turning point. So I see a lot more people starting to kind of try to understand, looking for resources to gain a better understanding, should I say, of some of the other problems that exist. I don't know that the dots have been connected about sustainability and then social justice, mm-hmm. um, in a broader sense, but I do think that it's much easier now to have these conversations with people than I felt like it might have been before, yeah. um, because minds are naturally going there. Where where do you put food in that equation of building and shaping culture? Gosh, yeah. So um, I think from the most basic sense, food is a connector, right? Everyone eats, and so it's a natural way to kind of get together and family. Um, But I also think that food informs culture in the way that it shapes traditions. So, for example, there might be traditions in one culture, right, where you all sit down together at the dinner table, but you don't speak. Instead, you know, you kind of eat in silence, but you're smiling, you're making noises, maybe you're slurping. All of those things are important. That's a tradition. That's a cultural tradition. Um, Maybe there are some cultures where you know, you you don't actually eat together as a family. Maybe you kind of, um, you know, you all make this buffet of food, but you kind of come to it and you start to eat throughout the day. Mm. There's also been studies about linguistics and food and how we talk about food in different cultures. Um, soul food as an example, where, um, you know, soul food and Southern food are almost, and I should say American Southern food, are almost indistinguishable in a lot of ways. They're so intertwined, right? You cannot actually think about what Southern food is if you take soul food out of the equation. It's almost as though it doesn't exist. Yet soul food also has negative connotations. People think of it as unhealthy, as greasy, as unrefined. And so we use those words, right, to describe it like, oh, you're going to eat this fried chicken that's so unhealthy. Um, So there's, there's other ways that culture plays, positive and negative. And so I think that when it comes to food and how food informs culture, at the end of the day, food is just food, right? But it's those traditions that we have around it that are really shaping how we interact with it and then how we interact with each other. And at the same time, there's obviously the migration of ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and how kind of ingredients come. So again, the transatlantic slave trade, right? How ingredients have come to the American South as an example um, and how that starts to, and also, you know, indigenous cultures, early settlers of the Americas 
and how you know they also had food, grew food, certain food for climate. It's all so intertwined. So I think that in some ways they inform each other. Food informs culture and culture informs food. We've talked about culture, we've talked about sustainability. Now I wanna talk about the culture of a chef, like the DNA mm. of a chef. And I have to say just, if you can overlay this with what is, you know, what you experienced at Top Chef, you know, I'm really, really interested to know what does it take to be a chef? What does it take to be an executive chef? Wow. Um, so my first thought, my first answer really is resilience because it's really, it's a difficult job. For the most part, especially when I became a chef, I thought it was going to be a little bit easier than it actually was. <laughs> all day, right? You get to think of great menu items, get to put it on the menu to kind of see. And that is just a small part of what being an executive chef is. A lot of it is about running a business. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it is about making sure that your team is, um, you've kind of created this work culture. You're almost like the steward of this work culture. And so you have to make sure that people are taken care of, but you also have to make sure that the business stays afloat. So you do a lot of crunching numbers. You do a lot of negotiating. You do a lot of making sure that, you know, your books are kind of in order. And so it really is the business of, it's almost like, you know, if you kind of just want to be creative, stay in a sous chef role, maybe be yeah. this the line, you know, I, I think I almost had a little bit more fun maybe with me when I was kind of in those roles, but executive chef, I mean, that is, oh, it's chef de cuisine, do that, you yeah. know, but executive chef is really, you are the business that yeah, is but, mostly do. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you, when you get the call from, from Bravo's top chef to, to, to join top chef and it's, uh, I think yeah. it's, it's the 18th season. Um, what, what's going through your mind? And are you thinking, oh, I like in that case, you're not going to be the executive chef in the, in the traditional sense that you just said, you're, right. you're now you're, you're sort of, you're, you're cooking. So yeah. how did you, how did you feel when you got that call and take me through that? Yeah. So it was almost, um, it felt like an out of body experience, <laughs> you know, um, like I had never, I've watched the show. Um, mm -hmm respect the show. I know chefs who've been on the show. They're friends of mine. Um, I never thought that I could see myself um, in that kitchen. And um, so it was just kind of, it was mind boggling. At first I was like, oh my God, whoa, mind blown. And then I was a little bit scared, actually. I was a little bit fearful. I thought, oh my gosh, like I just mentioned about being an executive chef, right? And also being chef owner of my spaces, I was like, I feel like I'm rusty. Like, what's the last time I on the line like this, you know? Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I have to like, you know, go, go full in again. Um, so a little bit of like, oh gosh, okay, I need to like get my chaps back up. Um, and so a little bit of fear, but also like it's, it was exciting because you don't know what you're going to do. You get there, you have no idea what's happening. All you know is that you're going to start to cook with a bunch of people who you probably have never met before in your right. life. And all, if not more so talented, you don't know. So you have no idea. And I think that the surprise element, um, every day being a little different, it's, I mean, completely rewarding and something that I just never thought that I would do or even say yes to. There was a time that I thought maybe this isn't for me. I don't know. 
Um, but ultimately I'm so happy. Oh, that's um, great. That's great. I'm always curious. And I know I, like, I, I hope this is okay to ask, but I'm always curious about the dynamics between the chefs on a show like that. And, the, and, and obviously the, 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 um, the judges and, and w- without teasing it out, I, I'm wondering being a chef is, is, it feels like it's such a competitive space. Uh, it's mm-hmm. such a, co- a competitive thing in naturally. And then when you get thrown on the show, which has, you know, such a great following and it's, it's really a fun, um, a, a fun atmosphere, but a tough atmosphere. Did, did you feel like the competitive juices came out in, in like in a good <laughs> way? Or was it like, Oh, this is, this isn't, this isn't great. Cause after the lights go off, you're kind of like, I'm, I'm upset at this person or that person. Right. Yeah. That's a great question. I, um, that was actually part of the fear because you're right. And being a chef, it can be a very competitive industry and it very much is about, I mean, you know, I, I typically don't say this, but um, I think I may have said it a few times before. And I think it bears worth repeating is as a chef, you are constantly putting yourself out there, right? You're constantly putting your food out there. And sometimes the food can be very personal. Sometimes it's less about like, I have these ingredients to use. I need to make something with it. Sometimes there's a story behind that, or sometimes it's a memory. And so kind of being that vulnerable over and over and over again is kind of difficult. You put yourself on the line and maybe literally. Um, So because of that, sometimes as chefs, we overcompensate. We got to get big egos, right? It's like, you can't knock us down. And that's a little bit of a defense mechanism, but it also kind of helps us stay in that mindset and stay focused. So I think a little bit of me thought, well, by being on the show, I'm going to be around a whole bunch of chefs with crazy big egos. I'm going to be so miserable because I hate that chefy stuff. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I, it's not my style. Um, and so I just kind of thought like, do I want to put myself through this? Yeah. You know? But yet, I don't know if it's the same thing with every season. I was so pleasantly surprised with our season where um, and maybe it was because of the year, you know, we filmed in 2020 and a lot of things happened here and perspective too um, happened a lot that year for people. Um, I think we just all came in ready to show our hearts. And there was an, a lot of, a lot of kindness, I think mm-hmm. a lot of camaraderie, obviously it's a competition. Like you'll, you'll see it. We're competing. Yeah. Cannot wait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not playing around, you know, we're, <laughs> We're trying our best every single day, right? Because um, you want to, because you want to show who you are. And it's almost like every single chance you get to show a little bit of who you are, you want to take it and do the most. Um, but at the same time, we also understand with each other how important it is to be each other's partners and allies and friend. Um, so, you know, even post competition, we all stay in touch. I talk with every single one of them almost every single day. You know, it, I, it, I'm so thankful for the group of friends, um, that I have found on that show. Um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. I was, I was blown away by that. Amazing. Amazing. Really looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, that's coming out, I believe on April 1st on, uh, on Bravo, uh, yep. top chef season 18 featuring, uh, chef Kiki. I know, you know what the, you kind of, you know what the ending is, but, for the audience of 54 Lights and anybody who's listening, we are teasing in your rise to the first place of that uh, of that journey. So this segment, I'm going to call it first place. And what you're supposed to do <laughs> is if you could please pick the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Ooh, okay. Okay. First thing. 
in your spare time, do you run to the kitchen or do you run to the dining room? Like, are you like, I'm going to cook, everybody clear out? Or are you like, oh, you know what? I'm going to sit down and somebody's going to cook for me. Oh, kitchen, always kitchen. Always the kitchen. I, I, yeah, <laughs> that was kind of a little bit of an obvious one. Um, what's the first thing you, you would cook? Oh, um, any given day. Mm-hmm. So I typically, I, I start my morning with eggs all the time. So probably a really nice soft scrambled omelet, um, whatever fresh herbs I have going on, something from the garden, something fresh, maybe some peppers, um, depending on the season, goat's cheese, oh. right? Yeah, definitely like a nice soft scramble. Oh, that's really good. Um, uh, offline, I'll maybe send you a note and ask you if that's where the nest egg came from, which is another one of the businesses ah, that you've been involved in. Yes. I think it's the first all women hospitality company or all women owned um, nest egg. Please, people check it out if you can. Um, another one of the firsts, again, we're propelling you to the first place of Top Chef. Are you an entrepreneur, a food activist, or, or a chef? Which, which are you first, Kiki? Gosh, um, food activist. Can, can technique and creativity overcome limitations of ingredients? So what, what would you put first, technique or creativity? Technique. I think that, I think that creativity is something that can grow if good technique is there. Mm-hmm. So I definitely would say that technique is the most important. You have to have the foundation. Right. Have the foundation. And once you have the foundation, I think the creativity can naturally flow, but technique for sure. In the movie about your life, we're going to talk about your travels through Top top Chef. We're going to talk about, talk about Nest Egg. We're going to talk about Yale, all of the things that you've done. Who plays Chef Kiki? Who's your first choice to be cast as yourself? Ooh, that's a wonderful question. love to know if you were not a chef so in the bizarro world in a different life different circumstances what's the first choice of what you would be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing right now if i wasn't doing what i'm doing right now so i have a soft spot for animals um, I really always have. Um, I have two dogs who I'm actually staring at <laughs> across the room right now. There's, um, I rode horses growing up and I've always, I like to rescue animals too. So it'd probably be something to do. I wouldn't say veterinarian, that puts me right back into that medicine. Because <laughs> yeah. your parents might be really excited about that. We yeah, got, we got like, her to oh, be no. a chick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we would be it. back in medicine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. No, They'll no. say victory, we've done it. <laughs> yeah, right, we've done it. I'm like, ugh. It's like my worst nightmare maybe. Oh, that's funny. Someone else, please. Um, but probably, um, you know, I don't want to say animal activism, but probably something to do with rescuing animals. Um, I'm especially passionate about pit bulls. Um, they get a really bad rap mm-hmm. and they're really misunderstood. And so I'd probably have a pit bull rescue. Amazing. 
So there you have it. The conversation continues. Part of this show was recorded and produced at Culturelite Studios, the soundstage and auditory office of 54 Lights. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by our friends at Multiformat. Special thanks to Chef Kiki for making time for us only days before your Top Chef debut. We're rooting for you on that show and in life. If you like what you've heard, there's more. Our upcoming roster of shows will include inspiring conversations with change agents, entrepreneurs, and other inspiring people from the continent and beyond it. If this is your first foray into our light show, please subscribe, rate, and enjoy all our episodes, past, present, and those yet to come. You can find us wherever you do your listening, from iTunes to Spotify to Google Podcasts, and many, many more. If you enjoy some social sprinkled in with your experience, please follow us on Instagram under our handle, Crowd54. Listen, like, share. This is your privileged host, Kandwani Mwase. Until we meet again. Thanks for listening.